Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Good morning. Happy Easter. We have this little tradition we do around here. If you're unfamiliar with it, I'm going to call out, He is risen. And that invites the opportunity for you to say back, he is risen indeed. We don't use the word indeed much anymore, so really lean into it, okay? So I'm going to throw it out. Let's try it. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. That is the heart of the gospel message on Friday. Jesus hung on a cross where he bore the penalty for our sins so we could have pardon, so we could have forgiveness. Christ died. But then on Sunday, he rose from the grave. And so meaning that when death comes, things aren't hopeless. There's actually great hope that things are getting better after death. And it's been proven that because Jesus rose, he has conquered death and we can trust him for that. And so that is the heart of the gospel. And, and really, that's what we preach every Sunday here. It's, it's, it's Resurrection Sunday, that's Easter, but... Ever since the resurrection on that Sunday, the church have gathered on Sundays. It's, it's the Lord's Day. And so we meet on the Lord's Day, Sunday, and we talk about the gospel. But today, especially, we just lean into that. We say, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. We praise God for an empty tomb and what that means for us for life and hope. Um, I want you to um, hear the words of Jesus this morning and not mishear them. We mishear each other all the time, especially if there's a language barrier. It happens a lot. I have some friends, and they're in a band, and they travel around. They were doing a show in the States somewhere, and they, were, um, they wanted to go out with some people after the show. And they, they met a couple guys from Germany who came to their show. And so they were all getting in cabs after, and they were just going to go somewhere. And my friend, being a good Canadian, right, wanted to make sure that his new German friends were, were okay. And so he kind of yelled over to them, getting in a different cab. He's like, do you have enough money? And one of the German guys just about to get in the cab was like, do I have a nice body? <laughs> My friend just had to jump right in the cab and just burst out loud. It was the funniest misunderstanding that possibly could have happened. And the German guy probably got in his cab and was like, I think that guy thinks I have a nice body, yeah? <laughs> so uh, don't want you to miss here this morning. Don't want you to miss here Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus' words this morning, and I want you to hear them. He's crystal clear, but more than just hearing them, I want us to not only hear Jesus rightly, but believe what he said. So let me pick it up. We're we're in John's gospel in John chapter 14. We've been kind of working our way through this for a good couple years here at Central. And this Easter Sunday, we're just carrying on with the next passage that we have. So it'll be on the screen as well. But if you have an app or a Bible, you're welcome to open to John chapter 14 in the New Testament, the fourth gospel. There are also Bibles in the top corners of the balcony and just outside the doors here. If you'd like to follow along in a Bible with a Bible, you can do that. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take it on your way out. It's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a Bible from us. So what's just happened is Jesus had said, has said something to his disciples. This is still what's called the upper room discourse. They're still there. Jesus has um, given them um, bread and wine that represent his body and his blood. And they've had this time together. And Jesus carries on now. It's, it's still happening. And Jesus says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled, but believe in me. Because in my father's house are many rooms. And I go and I prepare a place for you. And he says to them, I know the, you know the way. You know where I'm going. And you can come too. 
And so we pick it up there where Thomas, one of the disciples, is like, Lord, we have no clue what you're talking about. We don't know where you're going, and so how do we know the way? He's just utterly confused by it, and Jesus gives him the answer to his, his question of confusion. And this is what I don't want you to miss here this morning, because Jesus responds to him the way by saying this, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. You want to know the way to God? It's through me. Just lean into me. Just come close to me. Just surrender your life to me. Be a disciple of mine. Just stick close with me and you will know the way because I am the way to God. See, Jesus is for the world the way that God could be brought to people. Jesus came to us so we could be brought to God. Jesus is redemption for the world. He came to save. He came to rescue. He came to make you right with God. So what's the way? Jesus is talking about the way to God and it's via the son, Jesus. But we need to really kind of look closely at these words because what Jesus is saying is so countercultural to us today. See, I chat with a lot of people about faith and, and we have a lot of common understanding for a good while as we talk about Jesus. So maybe you're here this morning and you haven't given your life to Jesus. You wouldn't consider yourself a disciple of Jesus. You think Jesus is all right. Maybe you're wanting to explore more about him. But what, what, what might be the place where, where you get a little hung up is, is, is this statement. This is what I find in chatting with people. Maybe it's your experience too as you start to talk about faith and Jesus is... It's, I think Jesus is great, is, is often the response. Go around the world, there are very few people who have a problem with Jesus. Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus is a nice guy. Jesus is somebody who is a revolutionary in the sense of really compassionate to the poor and things like that. We love that. But Jesus takes it further when he says, I am the way, not a way. See, what, what works in our society today is religious pluralism, which is, I'm so glad you found Jesus and that works for you. I'm so glad that Jesus is the way for you, but he, he, he's one of many ways. And, and it's great for you, but I'm not sure about it. And, but, and what starts to be where this exploring Christianity might be a, a hang-up for many is this idea of exclusivity, that Jesus would claim to be the only way to God. That's exclusive, and that just doesn't jive in the pluralism of our society today. The pluralism of our society today is... is, is Really, a supposedly humble position, which is a position to say, none of us have all the knowledge, or none of us know all the truth, or have it, or know it, and, and it would be really wrong of us to say that Jesus is the way and the only way, right? And so, uh, maybe you've heard this popular story before that, that, that paints a picture of the um, religious pluralism of our day. It's about a, an elephant and some blind men. And these blind men come across an elephant and they're trying together to discover what does this elephant look like? Like, what is it like? And so one of the blind men walks up to this elephant and feels the side of the elephant. He says, wow, an elephant's like a wall. But another blind man walks up and touches the trunk of the elephant. He's like, no, it's not. It's, it's like a snake. Another blind man walks up to the elephant and touches the tusk of the elephant and says, whoa, this is sharp. An elephant's like a spear. Another blind man puts his hand on the leg of the elephant and touches it and says, elephants are like trees. 
And they begin to argue with each other. No, he's like this. No, he's like this. No, he's like this. this is that the elephant is like, of course, it's a story of what God is like. And we all have this limited perspective and only see a little bit. Well, this argument wakes the king of the land and he awakens from the commotion and calls out from the balcony. The elephant is a big animal. Each, man, each of you only touched part of it. You must put all of the parts together to find out what an elephant is like. And of course, all of these blind men at this point feel enlightened by the king's wisdom. And the blind men reach an agreement saying, each one of us knows only a part. To find out the whole truth, we must put all of the parts together. See, that is the idea of religious pluralism today, is to say, look, we're only all just grasping at a part of faith and spirituality. And, and so we can't all, we, none of us can claim that we know the whole truth, right? Together, maybe, let's just put our heads together here and all of our belief systems, and then we will find God. What's interesting about this story is, it, I, I would argue, I'm not trying to insult anybody this morning, but I would, I would argue it's a false humility of the religious pluralists. Because they say, look, everybody's blind. Everybody's blind. We're only seeing a little bit. We're only, only whatever we can touch and feel is what we know and we need to... But, but don't you notice that in this little parable of religious pluralism, somebody has full view and it's the king? It's actually the religious pluralist who's able to stand on the balcony and say, don't you see? You're all only seeing part of the elephant. Put it all together and you'll discover faith. And so what's happening here is the religious pluralist is, is putting themselves in the all-knowing position of seeing everything clearly, which is actually just at the end of the day a belief. And it takes faith to believe that all religious ro roads lead to the same place. It's a belief. And so he, as Christians, we say, well, our belief actually just lands on the words of Jesus where he says and he claims, and it's, we have to hear him rightly. I am the way. I'm the way to God. I am the truth. I am the truth of God. And I am the life. You will have life in my name because I am the life, not a way to life. He's very exclusive here. And so we need to see that that's kind of what's going on. And what's interesting is if you start to look at the religions of the world and say, look, we're all grasping apart and together we can kind of come to conclusions that all paths lead to God. But what's interesting about this is that the religions of the world themselves won't let you do that. Like take Islam and Buddhism, for example. They're diametrically opposed from one another. Their worldviews have almost nothing in common. Islam believes that there's a personal God who's omnipotent, omniscient, and holy, who created the world. It believes that people are sinful in need of God's forgiveness, that everlasting heaven or hell awaits us after death, and that we must earn our salvation. Buddhism denies all of these things. For the classical Buddhist, ultimate reality is impersonal. The world is uncreated. There is no enduring self. Life's ultimate goal is not personal immortality, but annihilation. And the ideas of sin and salvation play no role at all. So how can they both be just a part of the story that together, right? They contradict one another. The blind men need revelation in order to receive the truth. See, the, the, the parable is radically skeptical, skeptical about God and his knowability. Christians would argue that God has, in fact, revealed himself in general revelation, what we, creation and our consciences, and special revelation, which is the Bible, Scripture, and Christ, Jesus coming to save. See, if Christianity is true, then we can abandon our radical skepticism concerning knowledge of God in favor of the radical claims of Christ. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, for I am the way and the truth and the life. I would argue that 
to put our belief, because we all have beliefs, to put our belief in Jesus is a more defensible and a far more beautiful claim than religious pluralism. Christianity is the only faith where God sacrificed himself for us. He became the sacrifice. Christianity is the only faith where God became human and bore our burdens so that we could be made new. Jesus wants us to hear his words and grasp them. Hear him rightly. I have a nice body? Yeah? I'm not a way, I'm the way. Thomas Akempis, 15th century theologian about I am the way, the truth, and the life, says of Jesus, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. Jesus is all of those things. Without him, there is none of those things. I am the way which you must follow, the truth which you must believe, the life for which you must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the unending life. I am the way that is straight, the supreme truth, the life that is true, the blessed, the uncreated life. If you abide in my way, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, and you shall attain everlasting life. Without Jesus, there's no going, there's no knowing. There's no living apart from Jesus. Jesus rose from the grave. He is the life. Believe in him and live. Verse 19 of John 14 says, Because I live, you also will live. Because of resurrection, you too can have resurrection. The resurrection was God the Father's way of authenticating all of the truths proclaimed by Jesus. The resurrection was the ultimate credentialing of Christ. He rose. And because Jesus rose, we can know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And by believing in the resurrected Jesus, we too can have life in his name. So don't just believe about Jesus. Don't just believe that he is our way, but believe in Jesus and that he is the way. The resurrection of Jesus instills a powerful hope in us that we have life. It's the promise of the life we long for, where wrongs are righted, brokenness is healed, sad things come untrue, and everything is made new. Yes, all right, fine. Yes, Christianity is exclusive. But if the words of Timothy Keller are right, all religions are exclusive. There's, all, there's ultimately always a belief at the end of the day, a faith in something contrary to other beliefs. All religions are exclusive, he says, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity that there is. Doesn't matter who you are. This is the gospel. Doesn't matter who you are. Come. Doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic class you are. Doesn't matter what ethnic group you are. Doesn't matter what personality type you have. Doesn't matter what wrongs you've committed, what crimes you've committed. Doesn't matter your history. Doesn't matter anything, but come. Jesus is the way. He's exclusive. But it's the most inclusive exclusivity that there is because Jesus opens his wide, arms wide and says, come, come to me. You are welcome. Everyone in this room, welcome to Jesus. Embrace the, this inclusive exclusivity of Christ this morning. He died for you. 
And he rose to give you new life. Don't mishear Jesus this morning. He's the way and the truth and the life. Jesus goes on in John's gospel in, in, in chapter 14. He just, he repeats three times something he wants us to catch. Something that starts to make us really uncomfortable if we start to say, okay, yeah, okay, I'll believe Jesus is the way. But now we start to talk about following Jesus and things get a little uncomfortable yet again because we've talked about exclusivity and now we're talking about actually following Jesus. And look at the kinds of things he says. Look at verse 15. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. We start to go, oh man. Okay, so if I believe Jesus is the way, now I need to follow him. I need to do what he says. This is going to change my life. I'm not sure about this. Verse 21, he doubles down. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He says it again. Verse 23, Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. We're supposed to obey him, keep his commandments, keep his word. There is this uncompromising connection between the love of Jesus and obedience to Jesus that occurs over and over again in John's gospel. You can't miss it. There's this undeniable connection between love for Jesus and obedience to Jesus. If you love him, you'll obey him. Right? There are two types of friends we have in this world. The type of friends who say they've got your back and then the friends who've got your back. And the evidence that you're a true friend is that when a situation arises, you've got your friends back. You have it. You didn't just say you had it. You have it. What Jesus is saying here is that there's an evidence of true faith. There's an evidence of truly following Jesus, believing in him, following after him. And that evidence is you love to obey him. You keep his commands. You keep his word. You follow his instructions. Notice, he's not saying, if you, if you obey me, I'll love you. He's saying, if you love me, you'll obey me. There's no merit for us in this. We don't earn his favor. His salvation, his gift of life to us is free. Does it, all we need to do is believe in Jesus. We don't earn anything. But nonetheless, we are called to follow after him. So maybe you're a little bit like me at this point and you say, I don't know if I can do this Christian life, this disciple thing. I don't know if I can keep his commands. I don't know if I can keep his word. Welcome to the club. That's it. It's an impossible task for us to simply believe in Jesus and then do what he says. That's impossible. And so you're, you may be feeling this morning like, I can't do that. There are too many things pulling me in another direction. Or I just have so much self-doubt, I just don't think I can accomplish it. But can I just give you a promise of Jesus here this morning? He doesn't call you to just do it to just follow, to believe and then do everything rightly, to follow his commands. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. This is the great hope. I'm going to read these verses again. I just read to you 15, 21, and 23, but I'm going to follow them through because there's a promise waiting at every turn. Look at verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But then verse 16, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. You're called to keep my commands, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to help you keep my commands. I know you can't do it on your own. That's why I died for you. That's why I rose for you. You're not left to your own devices. I'm going to invade your heart by the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Look at verse 21 says the same thing. Whoever has my commands and commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I'll make myself evident to you. I'll be in your midst. I will help you. 
Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him. We will come to him and make our home with him. We will invade your life. Jesus says, I, I came to save you, and I am the way and the truth and the life, and by believing in it, I will invade your heart and help you to keep my commands. This is sanctification. It's a word that means it has to do with what Jesus does in us. It's the enabling power to grow in Christ-likeness. That's what sanctification is. It's an enabling power. It's not just you grinning and bearing it, pulling up your bootstraps, trying harder. I'm supposed to follow Jesus. It's not just you. It's an enabling power to grow in Christ-likeness. Sanctification has to do with the Holy Spirit reproducing the character of Christ within us. Um, LeBron James is the best basketball player on the planet. Some of you think it's Steph Curry, and you're wrong. <laughs> LeBron James is the most complete all-around basketball player on the planet, and he sealed his legacy. He solidified it when he went back to Cleveland and helped a team that wasn't going to win a championship without him win a championship in Cleveland. Nobody does that, by the way. If, if you don't know your history, nobody wins in Cleveland. Whatever you think of Cleveland, it's right. <laughs> and he went back to his home state and won the championship there. King James is a lot like um, Connor McSavior, which he's called. Which is, the Edmonton Oilers wouldn't be in the playoffs right now if Connor McDavid wasn't on the team. So those are super cheesy Christian analogies, right? Because there's King Jesus and there's the, the real Savior. But that's what happens is the superstar comes along to like the other guys who are on the team. And, and they're participating. They're in the game. Like they sweat. They touch the ball sometimes or the puck. But it's mainly like get it to LeBron. Get it to McDavid. Let them do the, the things that only they can do. So we have a chance of winning. This is what... The Holy Spirit does in us. See, there's an active and a passive role in sanctification. The passive role is we depend on God to sanctify us. We depend on him to help us to keep his commands. Because left to ourselves, we can't do it. Cleveland without LeBron can't win it. Edmonton Oilers, if Canucks had just rebuilt earlier, he might be ours. Ah! But there's this passiveness of the superstars on the team. That's the Holy Spirit. Only he can do it, and yet there's an active role. We strive. We recognize what Jesus has done on the cross, what God has accomplished in the resurrection and the empty tomb. This is astounding. This changes everything now and forever. It's incredible. And so we just think, wow, God, you're amazing. We love you because you sought us with your love. And so we strive to obey and God and take steps that will increase our sanctification. We desire to be made holy, but we recognize that the Holy Spirit has got to be on our team. He's got to be in our lives and help us actually achieve it, what we never could on our own. The English language falls short as it talks about the Holy Spirit in the longest discourse in the Bible about the Holy Spirit. It's, we're in it right now. John 14 through 17 is the longest passage in scripture about the Holy Spirit. And it uses these words, depending on your translation, they all fall short in English. Advocate, counselor, helper. Paraclete is the Greek, Greek word, which is kind of most close to a, a counselor, like a legal counselor. But this word helper, right? We think of an assistant like that helps us. But LeBron helped 
Cleveland win a championship, and by helped, I mean carried them on his back. <laughs> counselor also falls short. We think camp counselor, maybe. Don't think camp counselor about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> think legal counselor. Think advocate. Think one who comes alongside and bails you out. Comforter. I think of a blanket. Blinky. The comforter, the Holy Spirit, isn't the one who comes and coddles you and wipes your tears after the battle. The comforter is the one who gives you strength for the battle. In the midst of the battle, the Holy Spirit is saying, come on, I'm going to shore you up. I'm going to lead you through. I'm going to carry you in the process of the battle that is raging in your life and around you. I'm going to help you in this battle. I'm going to fit you for this battle. I'm not going to just wipe your tears after the battle. See, I want us to see this morning that, yes, we want to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I want you to rely on him so that you can live that out. And he's not just leaving you to try and do it. He's giving you an advocate, a counselor, a helper, a comforter to be your ever-present help in your time of need. I want to say this to you this morning. Maybe you've heard the saying, it's okay not to be okay, Central. It's totally okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. See, that's the, the Christian life. It's everyone. We could tell our stories and the deepest, darkest things of our lives that we've done or that we're battling or that are hurting us or harming us, whatever, all of it. It's okay not to be okay the doors of the church are wide open because the arms of Jesus are wide open to all. And it is totally okay not to have it all together. It's totally okay not to be okay. But it's not okay to stay that way. And the reason is this. He calls us to keep his commands and he tells us that he'll help us do it. And so as that happens in our lives, what begins to happen is a work in us that makes us more and more like Jesus. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and the Christian together that makes them more and more free from sin and more and more like Jesus in our actual lives. And as that happens for you in the midst of not being okay, you know what he'll do? Even in this life, he'll start to make you okay until he comes again or takes you home and he makes you fully into what you were always intended to be and makes every wrong right. But he will help you be okay. He will come to you in the midst of your hurts and he will bring you along and he will make you more Christ-like. And that brings glory to God and joy and satisfaction for you in your life. He will satisfy you because you'll be more like Christ, more the way you were made to be. All the brokenness will start to be righted in your life and he will truly sanctify you, make you more like him, and it will produce in you greater joy, greater satisfaction, greater peace, greater hope. You're becoming more like you were created to be, and it's only through the death and resurrection of Christ that that could ever be. Philippians 1, 6, put it this way, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. He will carry you through in the midst of not being okay to making you fully into the image of what he intended you to be. Let's just hang our hats on verse 12 here as we look at this last little section together. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and even greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. That's an interesting line. What does it mean? He'll do greater works than I. 
want to talk about the fact that Jesus sends us. We are sent. It has to do with what Jesus does through us. Jesus does things through us. And here he claims that we'll do greater things than he did. What does that mean? Does that mean I'll feed 10,000 people? Because Jesus fed 5,000 people? doesn't mean that. But first, here's the first thing. The contrast isn't between what Jesus did and what we'll do. The contrast is between what Jesus did in his earthly ministry and what Jesus does through us as he ascended, sitting exalted by the Father. So it's Jesus' work in his earthly ministry, Jesus' work through us now. It's all Jesus' work. That's the first thing. Um, the other part of it is this. Our works, the work that Jesus does through us, will be greater than the works he did that we read about in the Gospels for two reasons. There's no longer limited, Jesus is no longer limited by the pre-death humanness that characterized his ministry. See, Jesus in his earthly ministry, redemption was not yet won. The kingdom of God had come. He, his presence was ushering in the kingdom, but redemption had not been won because the cross had not yet happened, though he was approaching it. But now, redemption has been won. We're on this side of the cross, Christ's triumph over sin and death. It is finished. He is risen. Now those things are accomplished. So Jesus is no longer limited by this pre-death humanness. We're on the other side of the cross. The other reason it's better that Jesus go and that a, a helper can be sent like we've been talking about. Because in his earthly ministry, he could go and be in Jerusalem and people could flock to him in Jerusalem. And then he could go out to Bethany and he could go up to Galilee and people could flock to him at Galilee. But Jesus said, it's better that I go and that the helper come, the advocate come, your comforter, your counselor. Better that he come and be with you than that I stay. It's better that Jesus return to God the Father and send the Holy Spirit to dwell in every believer everywhere. As J.D. Greer put it, the Holy Spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside you. And it's what Jesus is saying here in this text. It's better that I go better that I go and be with the Father. I will give you the helper, the Holy Spirit, and you will do greater works than I did in my earthly ministry. Let me give you an example of that. Pentecost. It's not a very Christian-y word, but you see in Acts chapter 1 and 2, Jesus has said farewell to his disciples and ascended, and they're starting to put together all the dots of like, oh, this is what he meant about being the way. This is what he meant about sending. And so they're waiting in this room, and the helper comes. The Holy Spirit fills every believer and amazing things start to happen. For example, Peter, the really dim-witted, dumb-saying like, disciple, is now like starting to build the church. Like, and he steps out in the street and he proclaims the gospel. That Jesus died, that Jesus rose, that there's life in his name. And 3,000 people on the street give their lives to Jesus. It's better that Jesus go and send the helper and advocate for us to the Father because in that moment, more followers of Jesus were made than in Jesus' entire earthly ministry. As Peter, the guy who says the wrong thing, goes out and preaches the gospel and 3,000 people get saved. It's better that Jesus go, be exalted, send the helper, and that his church spread and that God with his people is in every place, everywhere, everybody who would believe. Then he goes on to say, whatever you ask, verse 13, in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 
Lots of us get really selfish at this point and think, I pray that I'll have a million dollars in my bank account. What's going on? He's not keeping his word. It's not what Jesus is saying at all. Because if we have believed in Jesus, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and then we've also said, I want to keep his commands, and I actually love keeping his commands, and he's giving me joy and success in keeping his commands, sanctifying me, his mission becomes our mission, and we want the things that Jesus wants. This is just part of the work that he does in our lives. So as this is happening, the things that are his desires that he wants become the things that we want. So anything according to his will, his plan, his purpose, he will do if we ask to take the gospel to the nations. If we ask and will be used, he will do it to extend mercy and compassion to the hopeless he will do it to see redemption, reconciliation, and restoration happen in people's lives. We pray to him. We ask him for those things, and he will do it. That's the heart of God, and he invites us to be involved in it. He invites us to believe in him, grow in him, with him helping us, and then being sent to proclaim him. I want to tell you a little obscure story um, from 2 Corinthians 7 in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the Syrian army has invaded Israel, and there's a famine among the people of Israel. And they're selling like little bits of food and unappetizing things for outrageous amounts of money because there's such famine, and people are going hungry. And then Elisha, the prophet, who's a prophet at that time, says, Tomorrow, flour and barley will be nearly free. They'll be in such abundance, you'll pay next to nothing for them. Like, tomorrow. And the people who are starving and looking around are like, How is that? possible. We're starving. There's no food. And then there's these four lepers the next day that are sitting at the gate and they think, we're going to die here. Let's just go to the Syrian camp. Like maybe they'll kill us, but will we be, we be worse off? We either die here or we'll may, maybe die there. So let's go try that. Maybe they'll spare us. Maybe they'll even feed us. So they go there. And when they get there, the Syrian camp is desolate. Like they're gone. And it's like they dropped everything and ran. They could just kind of tell that like people just dropped what they were doing and left. And it turns out that as these four Israelite lepers were approaching the, the, the Syrian camp, what the Syrian camp heard were chariots and horses, a mighty army coming to obliterate them. And they just ran. And the four lepers walk up to the camp. And, wow. They go into one of the tents and just start to feast eat and drink and like start to take loot like silver and gold and then they go to the next tent and they're like ready to carry on and then they think to themselves how can we keep this to ourselves people are starving and we have a feast and so they stop what they're doing they walk out of the tent they go back to their people and say come feast with us you will not believe what God has done that's a, little, that's a little taste of the gospel right there. Because if you have believed this morning that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he deals with sins and gives you life now and for all eternity, and there's hope, how can we just keep the feasting to ourselves in this little tent? We've got to tell those around us this good good news that though there is famine there is a feast to be had and we just need to bring them that's the heart of Jesus what Jesus does through us he answers the prayers when we say Lord we want your will to be done he will do it he will do it he will do it I invite you this morning into the most inclusive exclusivity that there is to know what it is 
to be saved by Jesus, eternity secure, to know him, to love to follow him, and to tell others about him. I just want to invite a few opportunities for a response this morning as we come to a close. Maybe you've never turned your life over to Jesus. You never handed it to him. You've never said, I have sin, I need to be forgiven of. I, I, I do feel a sense of hopelessness and I want the hope that's found in Christ. Perhaps you've never said the words. You've never prayed the words. If you've never prayed before, in this time of response, we're going to have a singing and prayer. I just invite you to just whisper a prayer to God. I want to be yours. Please forgive me of the wrongs I've done and, and know that you can rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. He gladly died so you could live. He wants to give you hope. Encourage you, if you've never done it this morning, turn to Jesus. It's unbelievable all that he has accomplished and done for you. He invites you. Respond to him. Perhaps it's been a long time since you've been at church. Perhaps it's been a long time since you've really said, I'm walking with Jesus. He invites you in and he doesn't just invite you to pull up your bootstraps and get better. What he invites you to do is say, come rely on me and I'll give you this helper, this advocate. I'll give you LeBron. You're going to win this thing. He wants to do that for you this morning. Turn to him and say, Lord, it's been too long. Help me follow you. Help me live for you. Sanctify me, Lord. And I invite you to, to trust him as you go and share the gospel with others. Live selflessly. Pour your life out for others because Jesus poured his out for you. He'll meet you in that. He longs and loves to answer the prayers of people who are living on mission as sent ones to tell his story, to bring people to himself. A couple really practical ways you can take a step of faith is if you've never been baptized as a follower of Jesus, confess belief in him and then turned and been baptized. Baptism is this picture of what Christ has done in a heart, which is that we die to sin and come alive to Christ. We're having a baptism Sunday in a couple of weeks, and this coming Saturday is our baptism class. Um, and there's a form you can fill out there around the building, and you can um, fill that out, and we'd love for you to join our class coming up on Saturday. Get baptized. Take a step forward in faith with Jesus. Turn to him and be baptized. We'd love to celebrate that with you in a couple of weeks. Also invite you to become a ministry partner. It's the language we use for being the church together. Not just a members only kind of a club. It's a being the church together, a common mission of praising Jesus, growing in Jesus and sharing Jesus and recognizing that together we can be great encouragements for one another. We need each other and together we can accomplish more for the kingdom. So leaning in and being church family, maybe it's time. Be a part of the church. We invite you to fill out the same form, become a ministry partner, come to the class on Saturday. And in two weeks, we'll celebrate that as well. Baptism and ministry partnership. Would you respond? Let's stand together. I invite you to respond in one way, shape, or form this morning to Jesus, to the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you make it crystal clear through your word that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Without you, there's no going. There's no knowing. There's no living. It's you and you alone are the way to God. And yet you say, come, you welcome us in. May we do that. May we respond that way. Come to you, turn to you. Jesus, I pray that you would invade the heart of every person longing for a touch from you, longing to live for you and finding it difficult. Lord, would you evidence yourself by your spirit? Would you just breathe a wind into sails? where there's no movement, Lord, would you just 
breathe fresh life, a move of your spirit where maybe we've denied you for too long. God, would you move among us for our edification and joy and for your glory. And Lord, would you use us as a church to proclaim this good news. There's famine around us when there's feasting to be had. Oh, Lord Jesus, draw people to yourself. We praise you that you are a risen Savior. We rely on that. We praise in that. In Jesus' name, amen.